Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024. Harvard President Claudine Gay resigns after backlash from her testimony before Congress in which critics say she did not sufficiently condemn anti-Semitism on her campus and after accusations of plagiarism. U.S. House Speaker Mike Johnson leading a delegation of more than 60 House Republicans to the U.S.-Mexico border as Customs and Border Protection says that agents encountered more than 300,000 migrants in December, setting a new record. We'll talk with Emily Brooks, House reporter with The Hill, about the goals of the trip, Senate negotiations on border security and immigration reform, and the chances the House will impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. January could be a pivotal time for the legal cases against President Donald Trump, who is a Republican presidential candidate for 2024. We'll hear from CBS News congressional correspondent Scott McFarlane. The Rochester, New York police chief and mayor talk about the deadly crash of an SUV loaded with containers of gasoline at New Year's Eve outside a crowded arena. They say they do not think it was related to terrorism or bias related. France takes over the presidency of the United Nations Security Council for the month of January. A reporter asks the ambassador about plans to address the war between Israel and Hamas. And former Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson, Democrat from Texas, has died. We'll hear a C-SPAN interview from 2022, right before she retired. Associated Press reports that Harvard University President Claudine Gay resigned Tuesday amid plagiarism accusations and criticism over testimony at a congressional hearing where she was unable to say unequivocally that calls on campus for the genocide of Jews would violate the school's conduct policy. Gay is the second Ivy League president to resign in the past month following the congressional testimony. Gay, Harvard's first black president, announced her departure just months into her tenure in a letter to the Harvard community. She wrote, It has been distressing to have doubt cast on my commitments to confronting hate and to upholding scholarly rigor, two bedrock values that are fundamental to who I am, and frightening to be subjected to personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus. And she said it's become clear that it is in the best interests of Harvard for me to resign so that our community can navigate this moment of extraordinary challenge. They're reporting from Associated Press. The other university president who resigned was Liz McGill of the University of Pennsylvania and the third president that testified before the Congressional Committee, MIT's Susan Kornbluth. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, Republican of New York, the conference chair, reacted to the resignation of Claudine Gay in a Fox News phone interview. 
all three university presidents gave morally bankrupt testimony at the now infamous congressional hearing to a very specific moral question. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate your university's code of conduct? And one after the other, whether it was MIT, Penn, or Harvard, failed to answer that correctly. Instead, bringing up it depends on the context. As you played earlier, it does not depend on the context. And as a Harvard graduate myself, we have seen a failure of leadership from Claudine Gay, a failure of moral leadership, but also a failure of academic integrity, which is a cornerstone of any higher education institution. So I called for her resignation, as I did for all three, because of their abject failure in that congressional testimony and their failure to protect Jewish students. This is long overdue. It should not have taken the Harvard Corporation Board this long to demand her resignation. And I believe, as we continue our congressional investigation, that we will uncover what will be the greatest scandal in higher education because the Harvard Corporation members themselves are complicit in this cover-up of her plagiarism and, again, most importantly, their failure to protect Jewish students on campus. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, Republican from New York, a phone interview on Fox News today. Congressman Bob Good, Republican of Virginia, posting, this is what's known as a good start. Parents should stop sending their kids and their hard-earned money to these woke, radical, anti-American indoctrination camps. Reverend Al Sharpton, in a statement called Pressure for Gay to Resign, an attack on every black woman in this country who's put a crack in the glass ceiling, and an assault on the health, strength, and future of diversity, equity, and inclusion. House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, is starting 2024 by leading a delegation of House Republicans to the U.S.-Mexico border to get briefings on immigration and border security and see what's happening there firsthand. They'll be going to Eagle Pass, Texas, in the congressional district of Tony Gonzalez, who was interviewed this morning on CNN. I will host Speaker Johnson, and I'm expecting at least 60 of my Republican colleagues uh, in a two-day border trip, which will start today in San Antonio, where we will hear from uh, Border Patrol's number two in charge and give us kind of an update on uh, what's happening in the Del Rio sector, but also along the border. And then tomorrow, we'll travel to Eagle Pass. We'll meet with people. We'll We'll meet with sheriffs. We'll meet with judges. We'll meet with ranchers. We'll meet with commissioners, kind of on the ground folks, seeing it every day, mayors uh, as well. We'll visit a couple of Border Patrol facilities. We'll meet with DPS. And my, uh, the goal is for House Republicans to be focused on uh, solutions towards the border as we get in the 24 uh, uh, year and, and we start to, to, to get uh, tackle some of these legislative priorities. Congressman Tony Gonzalez, Republican from Texas on CNN. With more on the House Republican trip to the U.S. southern border, we're joined on the phone by Emily Brooks, House reporter with The Hill. Thanks for being with us. This is the first trip of 2024 by the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, dozens of House Republicans going to the U.S.-Mexico border. What does that say about his leadership and his priorities? Yeah, well, I think with around 60 or more than 60 House Republicans expected to be there at the border right after the New Year's holiday. I think that House Republicans and Speaker Johnson are definitely making a uh, trying to make a big statement about putting the focus on border issues in the new year here. Um, and this comes as also the Senate has been uh, negotiating between Republicans and Democrats there about 
potential border policy and asylum changes as a condition of pushing through Ukraine aid. Those are pending. Um, And also, as the House has uh, flirted and explored uh, impeachment proceedings against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over uh, border policy and enforcement issues. And if, if your listeners recall, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene forced a vote on impeaching Mayorkas uh, last last year a couple months ago um but and so the there's a committee looking at that and uh promise to bring up uh findings from a report early this year and so this big border trip is really just setting the tone for a january that should be full of a lot of border issues but how close are they to an agreement that can actually pass is that the goal here with the uh, Senate agreement about the Ukraine funding and border policy changes, I mean, that is a big question. Um, you know, the House and Speaker Johnson have not really been at the forefront of these negotiations. A lot of times they are pointing to a Republican border bill that they passed um, last year in 2023 that had a whole lot of changes, which were probably not going to make it into any bipartisan agreement and that Democrats and uh, President Biden have already written off. So even if uh, negotiators in the Senate can come up with some agreement, it's to be determined whether the House would agree to that, particularly with so many members saying that they're not going to um, accept anything less but but significant border policy changes. Secretary Mayorkas and Secretary of State Antony Blinken just got back from Mexico. President Biden sent them there to meet with Mexican president and other officials. What was accomplished? Yeah, and one of the things from the readout um, from that meeting was that uh, the, they all recognized the benefit of regularizing the situation of long-term undocumented Hispanic migrants and DACA recipients. Um, And that for Republicans and for Speaker Johnson in particular was a red flag. Um, And Speaker Johnson put out a subsequent statement responding to that, saying that that shows the, the Biden administration has not really no intention of solving the humanitarian disaster and immediate national security crisis that these policies have created. And so they're definitely not happy with um, the, the readout from that trip. And it's just another indication that they, the House Republicans seem to be taking a pretty strong stand on these border issues with not a lot of room for negotiation and compromise. We're talking with Emily Brooks with The Hill. We talked about how in the Senate they, they are negotiating, Republicans and Democrats, and House Republicans are taking this trip. What has been the role of the House Democrats? You know, House Democrats have largely, you know, for this whole Congress, have just been pushing back on the House GOP. Uh, if, you know, there is potentially a scenario to where if those senators come up with an agreement that President Biden is supportive of and um, House Democrats can support, too. Potentially, there could be the votes to pass some kind of an agreement there. But, uh, of course, Speaker Johnson has um, much of 
the final say in most instances of what comes to the House floor. So if he's throwing out these strong signals about what he's looking for from border policy and asylum changes, and those are not included in that package, um, it's unlikely that a whole bunch of Republicans would help Democrats to try and circumvent his leadership to try and change it. So that's really the big question that I'm looking at, uh, what is coming out of the Senate negotiations, looking at that from the House side here. And final question, as you cover this delegation trip, House Republicans to the border today and tomorrow, what will you be looking for in terms of news? Certainly, one of the biggest things I'm looking for is any indications about whether impeachment proceedings could come up against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over management of the border. You know, this is something that Republicans have been working at and been indicating and Chairman uh, Homeland Security Secur- Homeland Security Committee Chairman Mark Green said that he is expecting to recommend impeachment proceedings. If those did come up, this would probably go through the House Judiciary Committee as well. But what kind of form that would take, how fast that would happen, how that would interact with the Biden, President Biden impeachment inquiry that's already underway are all big questions. And so what I'm looking for out of this trip is how willing the House Speaker is to push forward um, these, this, this impeachment push against the Homeland Security Secretary. Emily Brooks, House reporter with The Hill. Find her stories at thehill.com and on X at Emily Brooks News. Thank you very much. Thank you. And CNN reporter Manu Raju posting that Senate negotiators met for 90 minutes for their first in-person meeting on the border since before Christmas. And the Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, was there. Senator Christopher Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut, leaving Senator Kirsten Sinema's office. She's an independent from Arizona, telling reporters, I hope that at some point Republicans can take the offer that we've that we've been working on together in the room for a long time. And Manu Raju says, writes, says they need to be in a position to brief senators next week about whether they can reach a deal. A poll in December from the Associated Press and NORC Center for Public Affairs Research asked Americans to name the five issues they want the government to work on, and tops was the economy, 76%. By party, 85% of Republicans and 65% of Democrats named the economy. Republicans were more likely than Democrats to want the government to address some specific economic issue. On inflation, it was 41% Republicans to 22%. On government spending or debt, 22% to 7%. The White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, spoke about the economy today and President Biden's agenda, an interview on MSNBC. We're headed in the right direction as it relates to the economy. And look, when we left 2023, we saw the data, right? We pay attention to the data that showed consumer confidence was up, right? That showed that 14 million, more than 14 million jobs were created. We saw unemployment at under 4% for 22 months. Those those things matter. And that's what we're going to pay attention to. And what the president has also said, the job is not done. We need to do more. The two two words, two words that, we're, that I'm going to give you that we're going to continue 
continue to do as it relates to the economy is continue to lower uh, lower costs. And that has been at the center of, of Bidenomics. That has been at the center of how the president feels like he needs to move forward. And I'll take a step back for a second. In the last two years, uh, almost three years now, the president has done more, more in the last three years than some presidents had done in two terms, Mika, in two terms. And that is related to the legislation. Mm -hmm. When you think about infrastructure, when you think about the Chips and Science Act, all of these things are incredibly important. And as we move forward into 2024, the president's priority, as, as well as lower costs for American people, is going to make sure that we implement, we implement uh, those pieces of legislation. When we think about prescription drugs, continue to lower that, make sure that we're negotiating with Big Pharma. The president beat Big Pharma last year. And so th I think that's how we deal with whatever may come our way, is making sure that we're moving forward and implementing those key pieces of legislation. The White House Press Secretary, Corrine Jean-Pierre, interviewed on MSNBC. Congressman Buddy Carter, Republican of Georgia, also talked about the economy today and Bidenomics versus the House Republican agenda. He was on the Fox Business Channel. The question is, how do you fix it? Well, the first thing you do is you rein in federal spending. And this is what Bidenomics is about. This is what we've 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 witnessed here with the Inflation Reduction Act, the misnomer of a name, if you will. But still, too much federal spending. When the federal government spends more, you have less. There's no question about that. That's why we've got to rein in federal spending. We've also got to unleash American energy. You know, the, the inflation was at 1.4 percent with Joe Biden. Biden took office. Now we're supposed to be happy that it's coming down to 3.7%. That's yeah. ridiculous. The price of gas was at 239 when he took office. It went up all the way up over $5 a gallon. We've got to make sure that we get and unleash American energy. That's what's going to help. And the main thing that I hear when I'm traveling, I've been to Houston three times this year, the energy capital of the world, and I keep hearing the same theme when I'm there, and that is permitting is crushing us. Permitting is crushing us. We've got to re, we've got to revise permitting in this country. Congressman Buddy Carter, Republican from Georgia, on the Fox Business Channel. The House and Senate will be meeting tomorrow, January third, as the Constitution requires to end the previous session of Congress and begin the next session. But legislative business not expected until next week. On Wall Street today, the Dow up twenty-five, Nasdaq down two hundred and forty-five, S and P down twenty-seven. The House Majority Leader Steve Scalise, Republican from Louisiana, today endorsed Donald Trump for president in 2024, writing that under the previous Trump presidency, the economy was strong and interest rates were low, grocery costs were affordable, and families could afford to buy a house and provide for their children. The border was secure and crime was down. America had secure energy policies, keeping gas and utility prices low. Steve Scalise now joins two other members of the House Republican leadership endorsing Donald Trump for president. Speaker Mike Johnson and the conference chair Lee Stefanik. Majority Whip Tom Emmer has not endorsed him. As the 2024 presidential primary season heats up for Donald Trump and the other contestants, so does the criminal and civil cases that Donald Trump faces and now legal challenges to his ballot access. C-SPAN got an update from Scott McFarland, CBS News congressional correspondent. There's a huge date one week from today. January 9th is potentially the most pivotal of anything that's happening in any of these four cases. We're talking first about the federal case brought by Special Counsel Jack Smith right here in Washington, D.C. over the alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Of those four criminal cases, that's the first one on the trial calendar. It's actually scheduled for trial two months 
from Thursday on March 4th. But there's a thing in the intervening week. Next week, the appeals court here in D.C. Here's Trump's challenge to this case. He's arguing that he enjoys presidential immunity and can't be criminally prosecuted in this case and that all the charges should be dismissed and everybody should go home. Jack Smith obviously disagrees with that and argues presidential immunity sounds like a get-out-of-jail-free card for anybody who holds high office to do whatever he or she wants and that it's also just a preposterous notion on its face that somebody can be immune from prosecution simply for having been the president at the time. The appeals court gets into this on January 9th, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time. For those who care about such things, it's one of the rare federal courts that actually live streams the audio of the arguments. You can listen to this thing on the court's YouTube page and likely hear. And one hour of arguments, we'll see where the appeals court comes out. But their decision, John, could impact the trial date. Maybe it slides later in the calendar. Maybe it stays right there on March 4th. The appeals court could entertain Trump's argument he's immune from prosecution and start the process of dismissing this case or let it move forward. For the appeals court, remind viewers what the, this decision was on the lower court level, the district court level. What is the appeals court taking up here? Yeah, they're taking up what the district court judge did and Trump's appeal of it. The district court judge is Tanya Chutkin, randomly assigned to handle this 2020 election conspiracy case. She tossed aside this argument of presidential immunity and she used the phrase I invoked, that the president doesn't get a get out of jail free card for having been the president at the time. Trump appealed that decision from Judge Chutkin. That's why it's now with three judges of the appeals court for the Washington, D.C. Circuit, the appeals court that oversees the federal court here in Washington. The Supreme Court was asked to intervene by Jack Smith and say, forget about all this appeals court stuff. Let's just have you all weigh in. This is headed your way anyhow. And the, appeals, uh, the Supreme Court said, this isn't ready for us. Let's let the appeals court do its work at least first. They may or may not take it up after the appeals court rules, but we have a pretty expedited argument. The appeals court set a very nimble calendar. They're having this argument next week, a week from today. That's an ambitious time frame. Their ruling may be nimble as well. You talk about uh, expedited arguments and an expedited calendar. Uh, stepping away from these four cases, the two federal, the two state cases, there's more immediately the, the 14th Amendment uh, primary ballot access decision that the Supreme Court is being asked about, and that decision could come as early as later this week. And that's one where the Supreme Court's being asked to intervene by seemingly all parties involved. You have different states coming up with different rulings on whether Trump should be on the ballot, whether the 14th Amendment and its protections against those who engage in insurrection would prohibit Trump from actually being a candidate on the primary ballots. We know the Colorado Supreme Court has ruled he's off the ballot. Maine's Secretary of State, where the election official has decision-making power, decided Trump should be off the ballot. Those are both being appealed, so his name remains for now. But with different states giving different rulings, there are election experts, John, who say the Supreme Court has to weigh in on this. We can't have a patchwork of decisions impacting a federal election. So we're talking criminal cases. We're talking the 14th Amendment cases. What civil cases should we be keeping an eye on? And oh, by the way, there was that civil trial in New York, which just recently wrapped up over Trump's business dealings in New York State. Um, that's still out there as well. We actually know Donald Trump showed up in person at that one, right? That he was there in the courtroom, seemingly viscerally connected to that New York case in a unique way. There's also civil lawsuits filed by the victims of January 6th, right here in Washington, against Donald Trump. Think of the injured police officers. I believe they're members of Congress 
who've sued him civilly for monetary damages. The appeals court, the same one we talked about having a hearing next week, the appeals court ruled Trump can be sued civilly for damages by victims of January 6th. So that's still out there. And oh, by the way, there are those other three criminal cases you referred to. Scott McFarland, CBS News congressional correspondent on C-SPAN's Washington Journal program this morning. You can find our full segment with them archived at cspan.org. And C-SPAN will be broadcasting the Washington, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals hearing on Donald Trump's claim of presidential immunity against the prosecutions he's facing. It's scheduled for Tuesday, January 9th, beginning at 9.30 a.m. Eastern. Listen on C-SPAN Radio Watch on C-SPAN 3 television. You can follow on the C-SPAN Now mobile app or streamed at cspan.org. An article at the Denver Post, a man shot through a window and broke into the Colorado Supreme Court building early Tuesday morning, causing significant and extensive damage in several areas of the building before surrendering to police, according to the Colorado State Patrol. The incident happened two weeks to the day after the state Supreme Court ruled Donald Trump cannot appear on the state's primary ballot based on his actions surrounding the January 6, 2021 U.S. Capitol breach and the riot by his supporters. Colorado State Patrol officers said in a news release that Tuesday's incident is not believed to be associated with previous threats to the Colorado Supreme Court justices. Police were investigating threats made to the justices in the week after the ruling and increased patrols around the Denver homes following at least one hoax report. The Associated Press reported That was through the Denver Post article. Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold, a Democrat, says that after her state Supreme Court ruling, she received over 60 death threats. She spoke today on CNN. I was actually a party to that case, um, but I wasn't the petitioner who brought the case. Uh, I was actually one of the defendants as the chief election officer and the person who certifies who is on and off of the ballot. Um, But what happened is as soon as that case was filed, I started to receive uh, a lot of death threats. And when the Colorado Supreme Court acted in in deciding that Donald Trump had disqualified himself because he engaged in insurrection, they received a bunch of death threats and so did I. Uh, So it's just a, a atmosphere of political violence that unfortunately is not new. It has been with us since the 2020 and 2021. Uh, being used to try to intimidate secretaries of state and election workers. But I won't be intimidated. We're going to still have great elections in the state of Colorado. I would say Donald Trump and Republicans in in Congress and high-ranking Republicans across the nation who have not stood up to condemn the rhetoric of violence. You know, all the lies, all the disinformation are, are used as justification to suppress the vote across the nation. Uh, The lies have incited security breaches, including election officials breaching their own equipment, uh, and have really incited a a wave of political threats to election workers. Uh, And the intended result is happening. Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold, part of her interview today on CNN. Story from Reuters, U.S. Senator Bob Menendez helped a New Jersey businessman seek an investment from a Qatari company with ties to the Middle East country's government. Prosecutors said on Tuesday in a new indictment against the Democratic lawmaker, Menendez in October pleaded not guilty to charges of conspiring to act as an unregistered foreign agent for the Egyptian government and accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars from 
New Jersey businessmen in exchange for interfering with law enforcement probes into them. In Tuesday's superseding indictment, federal prosecutors in Manhattan said Menendez introduced the businessman to a member of the Qatari royal family to negotiate a multi-million dollar investment into a real estate project. That businessman was indicted alongside Menendez and has pleaded not guilty. That from Reuters. Washington Today continues in a moment. People often think C-SPAN is funded by the federal government. In fact, we're a nonprofit organization that receives no government funding. As news consumption changes, you can help ensure the future of C-SPAN's unfiltered coverage of national government and politics. We hope you will consider making a tax-deductible contribution that will support our daily editorial operations. To learn more, visit cspan.org slash donate. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app and wherever you find your podcasts, the mobile app is free. This from ABC News, the driver suspected of causing a fiery fatal crash outside a concert venue in upstate New York early New Year's Day was identified on Tuesday. However, officials added they have not yet found any nexus to terrorism after multiple canisters full of gasoline were found in his vehicle. Two people in a ride-sharing car were killed after a rented Ford expedition driven by the suspect. 35-year-old Michael Avery slammed into it and burst into flames as it sped in the direction of pedestrians in a crosswalk outside the Kodak Center. At about 12.52 a.m. Monday, the Rochester Police Chief David Smith said in a news conference Tuesday morning, Avery was also killed in the collision with the ride-share vehicle that was struck as it was exiting a parking lot of the Kodak Center where a Grateful Dead tribute band had just performed, Smith said. That was from ABC News. Here is part of the news conference with Chief David Smith. Although the motive behind the crime remains unknown, the conversations we've had with his family so far leads us to believe that Avery may have been suffering from possible undiagnosed mental health issues. At this time, we've not been able to identify there was anyone else involved in the crime or that it was part of a larger plot. Additionally, we have not uncovered any information leading us to believe that the actions of Michael Avery on New Year's Eve were motivated by any form of political or social biases. It must be noted this is an ongoing investigation and additional information may be developed. We're going to share his photo today and ask that anyone with additional information about this tragedy or about the suspect's motivation, please contact the RPD Major Crimes Unit at 428-7157. There's also an email, and this will be on the written release when we put it out, but it's majorcrimes at cityofrochester.gov. The Rochester, New York Police Chief David Smith at today's news conference. The FBI also represented at the news conference Agent Jeremy Bell concurring, saying so far we've uncovered no evidence of an ideology and no nexus to terrorism, either international or domestic. Chief Smith said that video of the incident shows Michael Avery sped up, crossed into an oncoming lane of traffic, and appears to have intentionally been driving towards pedestrians in the crosswalk before the crash into the other SUV, 
which led to pedestrian injuries and the fatalities in that other SUV. The Rochester mayor, Malik Evans, also at the news conference, says it's important to let the public know what is known and still unknown about the incident and to remember the victims. There are still many unanswered questions. Uh, We hope to continue to provide updates as we have them. Uh, I have been getting inundated with questions as to why this individual would choose, number one, Rochester, New York, why he would choose to do this on uh, on, on New Year's Day, and why um, he would appear to target concertgoers trying to have a great time to bring in the new year. Those are all things that we don't have questions. Uh, Those are all questions that have been raised and things that we just don't have answers to yet. Uh, But as I've said, um, the Evans administration is big on transparency. So we wanted to make sure today that we provide uh, an update on all the information um, that we have available now because there, there's been tons of stuff that has been uh, out there that has been unsubstantiated. But what the chief just laid out is the facts. But the most important thing today, I think, for us as we go into the new year is to remember the victims of this horrific accident. Remember, these folks were going to see a Grateful Dead tribute band, and they were expecting to be able to ring in the new year and have a good time. But instead, we have individuals that are now going to be burying family members And we have people who have now life-altering injuries uh, because of the choices um, that this suspect made. Rochester, New York Mayor Malik Evans at a news conference. This is Washington Today. An article at Vox.com, the South African government has taken its firmest stance yet against Israel's war in Hamas, accusing Israel of genocide against Palestinians in a new case in the International Court of Justice at The Hague. South Africa initiated the case Friday and requested the ICJ order Israel to stop its onslaught in Gaza immediately. While South Africa's filing may not affect the outcome of the war in any meaningful way, it does draw on long-standing ties between black South Africans' liberation struggle and that of the Palestinian people. It also signals the country's desire to challenge the U.S.-dominated international order that it sees as unfair to African and non-Western interest. That was reporting from Vox.com. A spokesperson for the Israeli Prime Minister's office, Elon Levy, responded today during a virtual news conference. The Hamas rapist regime bears full moral responsibility for all casualties in this war that it launched on October 7 and is waging from inside and underneath hospitals, schools, mosques, homes and UN facilities. In giving political and legal cover to the October 7 massacre and the Hamas human shield strategy, South Africa has made itself criminally complicit with Hamas's campaign of genocide against our people. It shares culpability for the tragic loss of human life. The State of Israel will appear before the International Court of Justice at The Hague to dispel South Africa's absurd blood libel. How tragic that the rainbow nation that prides itself on fighting racism will be fighting pro bono for anti-Jewish racists. We have no doubt that after the Jewish state brings to justice the perpetrators of the bloodiest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust, history will judge South Africa for abetting the modern heirs of the Nazis. We assure South Africa's leaders, history will judge you, and it will judge you without mercy. Elon Levy, spokesperson for the Israeli Prime Minister's office during a virtual news conference. Associated Press writing about this, Israel rarely cooperates in international court cases against it, dismissing the United Nations and international tribunals as unfair and biased. 
Its decision to respond to the charge signals that the government is concerned about the potential damage to its reputation. The genocide charge strikes at the heart of Israel's national identity. The country sees itself as a bulwark of security for Jews after the Holocaust killed six million Jews, and world support for Israel's creation in Palestine in 1948, was deeply rooted in outrage over Nazi atrocities. The Convention Against Genocide was drawn up by world powers the same year in hopes of preventing similar atrocities. That reporting from Associated Press. Some other headlines in the war between Israel and Hamas. This via NBC News. Israel says it will withdraw five military brigades, including many reservists from the Gaza Strip this week, in an effort to pace itself for an expected long-term conflict and to mitigate damage to its economy. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said that the war is expected to go on for many more months. And a senior Hamas leader, Salah al-Arori, was killed in a drone strike in a suburb of Beirut, Lebanon. At the United Nations in New York City, the new president of the Security Council for this month, Nicolas de Riviere of France, spoke to reporters about his plans. Hi, my name is Ibtissam Azim, Al-Arab Al-Jadid newspaper. Um, so I have two questions. First, uh, today in the morning, the Algerian ambassador, when he talked uh, in the ceremony, he said that one of the goals for Algeria uh, is uh, in the current situation uh, as a member of the Security Council to put an end to the uh, genocide against the Palestinian people in Gaza Strip. And he also emphasized uh, the importance and the, um, um, the, the urgency to, for a ceasefire in Gaza. So my question here, does France, the first question is, uh, do you, in your national capacity, do you, do you share these sentiments? What is France going to do during this uh, um, membership, presidency in order to, 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 for a ceasefire? And the second question, also on Gaza, Given the high number of people who, uh, civilians who were killed, uh, at least uh, uh, 20,000, does France support uh, an armed embargo on Israel and the Israeli government, or at least a stop of uh, French um, uh, delivery of weapons to the Israeli government in this current situation? Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much. Well, uh just a word on, a, on this crisis in Gaza, which remains a huge concern. Uh, there is no progress, of course. Uh, the uh, fighting continues. Uh, we should all uh, uh, remind ourselves that it started on October 7 with an absolutely monstrous attack by Hamas on the Israeli population, on Jews. You know, I think probably 1,200 have been killed, women raped. Uh, it's just uh, uh, everybody saw that. So uh, to a certain degree, uh, we need to keep that in mind. Uh, you, we need to understand that Israel has the right to defend itself and to make sure that these things can, do not happen again. Uh, <clears throat> everybody uh, knows what the agenda of Hamas uh, uh, is uh, is basically uh, uh, eradicating Israel. <laughs> Let's call a cat a cat. So uh, this is where where we are, and uh, it's not acceptable. This being said, uh, while Israel has a right to defend itself, of course, and to go after the uh, terrorist fighters, because what we are talking about is a terrorist attack. Uh, it doesn't allow uh, 
to uh, respond in a disproportionate manner and to go after civilians. And I think what we will certainly uh, support is the reaction that would just make a clear distinction between terrorist fighters and civilian population, which is not the case now, of course. So what we want to see is a full respect of the Geneva Conventions, the law of the war. Uh, the civilians should not be a target, uh, elders, women, children, they should not be a target. Unfortunately, they are. Uh, the numbers are pretty much those you mentioned, so it should stop. And this is why France, uh, again, while recognizing the right of Israel to go after the terrorists from Hamas, uh, certainly would like to see a sustainable cessation of hostilities uh, to make sure that civilians uh, can continue to uh, be protected. I think protection of civilians uh, is of the essence in this case. And that, uh, and second, that uh, humanitarian relief could be provided uh, to uh, to Gaza, to the people of Gaza. Nicolas de Revier is the French ambassador to the United Nations. A news conference today at the UN in New York City as France assumes the rotating monthly presidency of the UN Security Council, taking that presidency in January. The Council on American Islamic Relations, or CARE, and more than 100 groups seeking to end USA to Israel's military, planning a march on Washington for Gaza. They're calling it on the National Mall, Washington, D.C., on Saturday, January 13th. According to a media advisory, organizers expect the march to be the largest pro-Palestinian event in the nation's capital since this latest conflict broke out. Former U.S. Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson, Democrat from Texas, who died on Sunday, is being remembered as a trailblazer. She was the first black woman elected to state public office from Dallas. She served 50 years in office, 20 as a state rep, then 30 years in the U.S. Congress. C-SPAN spoke to the congresswoman one year ago, right before her retirement, about being the first African-American and woman to be the chair of the House Committee on Science, Space and Technology. When you look around this committee room and you see the portraits of past chair, can't help but notice that they're men and they're white. You became the first African-American, the first woman to lead this committee. What did that mean to you? What do you think it means for history? Well, I hope it means more for the future than for me, uh, that women can truthfully say that they can be a part of policymaking in the science fields. Um, my, I had two great-granddaughters to open the portrait, and I did that by design. I wanted them to be here to see uh, that you can achieve, and you can achieve in areas that, for the most part, men had done in the past. Uh, it's, um, that satisfaction is probably what I get from it, is to show young women and girls that yes, the science field is open to you. And who is more prepared to do it than someone who gives birth to everybody else? <laughs> and so it is, that's my greatest satisfaction, is that women now can see that you can progress in an area that was considered, had been considered exclusively for men. Eddie Bernice Johnson, a C-SPAN interview in December 2022 in her final days in Congress before retiring. She passed away 
on Sunday. President Biden posting Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson was a dedicated nurse, state legislator and leader with a commitment to the promise of America. And Vice President Kamala Harris with this post, Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson was a visionary pioneer and a fighter throughout her long career in public service. She was always clear-eyed about who she was fighting for, the right of every person in Dallas and across the country to live free from discrimination and to have the opportunity to live up to their full potential. Eddie Bernice Johnson was 88 years old. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter, Word for Word. It's free and get the stories making headlines in Washington emailed to you every day. Subscribe at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night.